Hi, I'm Kyle Reynolds, and welcome back to Green and White. I normally start off with the first part of a story, then go into some background information, and finish that story up. But today, I'm just going to go right into the topic, and it probably doesn't come as a surprise to any of you. President Trump has announced he will renew the United States' commitment to the Afghan war, and it will likely involve a troop increase, and likely a substantial increase at that, among other things. Now, I'm no fan of Donald Trump, and I even lost 20 bucks when I was in Afghanistan last year, betting against him becoming president. But one thing I did appreciate was when he was campaigning, he had an insistence that he would stay out of foreign wars and avoid escalating America's longest conflict in Afghanistan. But if there's one thing I know from my time as both a political analyst and as an American citizen who reads above a third grade level, it's not to trust anything a politician says. But now Trump is president, and a week ago he announced this new commitment to Afghanistan in a speech to the American people, and I wonder what went wrong. I know a couple of articles in the Washington Post and the New York Times described Trump being against continuing the Afghan war until his generals persuaded him otherwise, so the only time Trump seems to listen to other people is when a war is involved. So the cynic in me thinks that Secretary of Defense Mattis and General Nicholson, the man in charge of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, have a personal stake in this war. So, just four years ago, Trump took to Twitter, as he always does, and said, quote, Do not allow our very stupid leaders to sign a deal that keeps us in Afghanistan through 2024, with all costs, by the USA. And then he said, quote, We have wasted an enormous amount of blood and treasure in Afghanistan, their government has zero appreciation. Let's get out, end quote. And I think it's great that we have Twitter archives to call our leaders out when they lie to the American public, but I could speculate all day, and when I speculate, I have a tendency to become cynical. I could say that General Nicholson and the rest of Trump's high-ranking military advisors may have been promised super high-level executive positions at companies like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, DynCorp or some other company that makes profits off the war. I could be wrong. These men could really believe that sending more troops, spending more money, and dropping more bombs will somehow win the war. Then I hear stories about Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, an infamous, infamous mercenary group known for some pretty bad war crimes carried out by its employees in Iraq. Prince wanted to privatize the entire Afghan conflict. He said the war could be fought cheaper with private contractors than by sending soldiers. Of course, he has a stake in a massive private war. But I don't want to speculate too much. What I want to do in this episode is to describe the intelligence process as I saw it and as I briefed it and as my comrades briefed it. Then I want you, the listener, after it's all said and done, to think about Afghanistan and whether we need to send more Americans to fight. Keep in mind, I'm not a high-ranking general. I wasn't promised a CEO position at some contractor company. But I did work for these people. So for American troops, deployments are usually 6, 9, or 12 months, depending on the job. For government contractors, the deployments were as long as you could stand it, or as long as the contract lasted. So really, every year or so, an entirely new set of people would come in to fight or gather intelligence for the ones who did the fighting. So when I arrived as a political analyst at Kandahar, someone described the conflict as a war that has a lobotomy performed on it every nine months. That nine-month lobotomy is what I think is interesting. So for the first month, you spend your time getting spun up on the country, the major players, 
years of political and military history, tactics, places, and anything else they don't forget to tell you. Then, the people you were sent to replace are gone. They're headed home, and they probably checked out mentally a month or two before they started giving you all the stuff you need to know. And now, for seven months, you perform your job. You read the reports, write the papers, write the articles, brief the generals and the colonels, and the whole time you're learning and trying to make sense out of the complicated landscape. People are promoted and fired and moved around. Taliban leaders are killed or promoted or imprisoned. And these high-ranking men rely on your knowledge and analysis to make decisions. And you're working 84-hour weeks, 12 hours a day with no days off, so you start to get burned out. You've written so many pages of analysis and briefed so many people and learned so much, but you get to where you don't care too much anymore. You need to sleep. The food starts to get old. The people you are with start to annoy you. You haven't seen anyone without a gun in months. You haven't had a beer. You haven't seen your family. You haven't had anything close to a romantic relationship. So you're thinking about leaving if you're a contractor or you're waiting on replacements if you're a soldier. Then you check out mentally and sort of half-ass a handoff with your replacement and find the first flight out. All your replacement knows about Afghanistan is what you told him. You hope he takes the time to read and study for himself, but you're fed up by that point and you have a good reason to be. All that work you did has been completely misinterpreted or ignored in favor of the all-important narrative. There was a period of time where I was writing weekly reports to be sent to headquarters for the Afghan mission in Kabul. I would take all the important analysis, lay it out in a document as it related to the war effort in southern Afghanistan for the week, and then go over it, sentence by sentence, with the colonel in charge of the intel section. If the analyst for Zabul or Uruzgan province wrote something that seemed dire or made a prediction based off months of intelligence, that the Taliban were poised to make gains in the near future, that statement would be scrutinized and doubted. The colonel didn't want to put anything negative in his briefing, because when he read it to the general, our general would then have to brief it to the commander of all U.S. forces in Afghanistan. I would type up the weekly report based on the analysis of my comrades in other sections, and the wording would be picked apart. For instance, the Taliban didn't take a place, they occupied it, which would imply they left or that friendly forces could somehow reoccupy that place. I know this doesn't sound like a big deal to anyone, but when words are changed to make the situation less dire, you can alter the recipient's view of the war entirely. And I said all of that to say this. As analysts, we knew things were bad. The Taliban was gaining territory. Our allies were working against American interests or stealing, running opium, or assisting the enemy. We knew that every day. But when it came time to send the message higher to the general in charge of the South, that would subtly be changed to something that didn't sound so bad. Then he would brief it to Kabul and likely tone it down a bit more. Then Kabul would brief it to Washington and suddenly the war was going okay, and the analysis has only changed hands about three times. I heard reports from higher up that, quote, the Taliban was staring defeat in the face, end quote, and then in just a few months heard the war described as a, quote, stalemate. And never once did I hear what victory or defeat looked like. I couldn't tell you an end goal, and neither could anyone else. 
I could list some short-term goals like it would be nice if the Afghan police didn't abandon all their checkpoints or sell their weapons to the Taliban. It would be nice if the Afghan army would reopen a road the Taliban closed last week. But the constant back and forth between the national forces and the resurgent Taliban would surely be pointless if there wasn't an end goal. I guess you could say that complete autonomy of Afghanistan could be turned over to the national unity government and that the Taliban would surrender to that government and everyone would live in peace. That sounds like a good end goal, but anyone who has worked in Afghanistan could tell you that's only really a dream. It isn't realistic. The Taliban will always be a force that opposes a Western-style government, and the current government only exists because the United States props it up. Without U.S. support, the government would likely collapse, and you would see a period of civil war like in the 1990s with warlords and other groups competing for control of Kabul. The Afghan war is in its 16th year, and for whatever reason, Donald Trump and his military advisors all think they're going to solve it. The plan isn't written down anywhere, but it's likely that more U.S. troops will go in order to advise the Afghan military and fight alongside them in operations against the growing threat of the Islamic State in Khorasan province, and they are the South Asian branch of ISIL. Trump mentioned loosening the restrictions on Allied forces in engaging the enemy. For the past few years, there have been very strict rules of engagement when it comes to Western forces engaging enemy combatants, and no doubt the reserve units who deploy to Afghanistan will be thrilled with a new opportunity to kill people. However, loosening the rules of engagement doesn't fix the problem. At the end of the day, the Afghan war is a ship floating helplessly at sea with no destination, no captain, and a crew that swaps out every few months. You can kill people all day, but without a goal in mind, it's really just murder. Over the last few months and last few weeks, coalition airstrikes have killed civilians in Afghanistan. And over the course of this war, the United States has always had a bad habit of killing civilians in airstrikes. Uh, loosening restrictions will only exacerbate this issue. Trump and his advisors need to come up with an end goal, and they need to get everyone involved directed toward that goal. With an end state in mind, commanders can prioritize, and the analysts can direct their efforts toward something beyond the back and forth of daily combat operations. But Trump hasn't stated a goal, and neither did Obama or Bush before him. There is no reason to think Trump will be any different, and it is likely this war will continue on into the next presidential administration. They call Afghanistan the graveyard of empires for a reason. The New York Times ran a great article that I linked on this podcast's Twitter account called The Graveyard of Empires. There are stunning historical photographs with the British and the Russians and even Americans engaged in modern-day firefights. And it really is remarkable how little the landscape and people have changed. Even in the photos showing the British occupation, the Afghan warriors are dressed in much the same way people dress today. Rather than old infield rifles, the Afghans are now using AKs and PKMs, but it's all the same. Nothing has changed. And I mentioned cynicism before, and it's hard to spend even a little bit of time in the war machine and not become cynical. With no end goal for the war, it's easy to imagine that there are more nefarious actors at work than incompetent politicians not wanting to take responsibility 
for the inevitable power vacuum when the Western world abandons Afghanistan to the designs of its more questionable people. And who is to say it isn't a testing ground for American weapons of war? Lockheed Martin and Raytheon making money by bribing politicians to expand the war is just as likely as any other scenario. The goal is to simply keep American casualties low or non-existent so we can continue to drop bombs and build drones without too many Americans getting pissed off about seeing flag-draped coffins loaded onto transport planes. And until someone tells me why we are in Afghanistan, I'm going to assume a profit motive. In my time working the Afghanistan mission, it was the only motive that ever made sense. I'm sure if you listen to this podcast, you're probably an intelligent person. Not too many people tune into a podcast about Afghan politics and history without also turning on their minds. So if you believe the Afghan war serves a greater purpose beyond making a few companies and their CEOs exceptionally wealthy, I welcome your input. The truth of the matter is I don't know for sure. I was an analyst and I use that mindset every single day of my life. I can only take in raw information and find patterns and make connections. I can tell you my best guess, but I don't claim to know anything for sure. And thank you for listening to this episode of Green and White. I'm trying my best to find some other stories to tell you, and I know this episode is probably not what you listen for. I thought it was appropriate to make this commentary now, while the Trump decision on Afghanistan is still buried somewhere on the New York Times website. I urge you all to read more about Afghanistan and follow this podcast on Twitter at greenandwhite27. I post all sorts of articles and news I find from all over about the war and all of its participants. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. It will help me get noticed. Thank you.